Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with John Osmond. Now, I've known John for many years. Uh, he did, many years ago, work for the Western Mail uh, as the Welsh Affairs Editor, but that was before I knew him. I came to know him when he was the director of the Institute of Welsh Affairs, the think tank, uh, from which role he stepped down uh, a few years ago. Uh, But he's always been a man who has been at the centre of the debate about Welsh devolution and about Wales as a nation for many, many years, and that really has uh, been a lifetime work for him. He's written many books, but now he's got uh, a new book out, which is a novel, Uh, So uh, he's actually written what is, in my view, a very fine novel. It's a monumental work which has in it references to more than 200 characters, all of whom, uh, with the exception of a a couple of protagonists in the book, are real people. And what he's done is gone into a lot of the ideas about uh, Wales, Welsh politics, Welsh history, Welsh political history, the Welsh language, and other associated matters um, that uh, many people talk about in academic conferences or sometimes in pubs, um, but it hasn't actually uh, really been into uh, the uh, creative area very much, uh, I would I would say, and there haven't been many novels written about this uh, sort of issue. Um, and what John Osmond has done now is to... Uh, write a, a history uh, in novel form uh, which goes uh, in the first volume, and this is the first volume, uh, which goes from 1973 to 1979, which was, of course, the year when there was a very heavy defeat for Welsh devolution in a referendum. And uh, that novel in itself is 600 pages long uh, and a bit more with some notes and biographical details. Uh, but there are going to be two more volumes taking the story right the way up to 1997 when there was the narrow victory for Welsh devolution. So before we talk about the book itself, uh, John, um, uh, give me a bit about your your background, uh, where you were brought up and um, what drew you to be so interested in the ideas that you expound in the book. Well, I was born and brought up in Abergavenny, uh, known as the gateway to Wales, but it's right on the border. And um, in terms of um, the degrees of Welshness, you might say not terribly Welsh. At least it wasn't in those days, certainly, for example, in the sense of the language. I mean, until I was in my teens, I'd never heard of the Welsh language, for example. Uh, But all all the same, it was a, a very Welsh place, I realise. It's surrounded by hills, 
I was brought up doing a lot of walking with my father and all that kind of thing. Um, also, I, uh, in my teens, I um, developed surrogate parents in that the minister of our church, the Presbyterian Church, came with his wife and uh, they became great friends of my family. And in a sense, they became additional parents to me and they brought a whole new dimension. They were Welsh speakers. They, Penry, um, in fact, he appears in the book, actually, but uh, Penry was from Llanelli. Well, no, he was from um, the Rondel and Barry, but he'd been in Llanelli for many years. This was his last ministry before he retired. His wife, Gertrude, uh, was from North Wales. And um, I, I was th thinking about this the other day. In actual fact, uh, when I was gr growing up, and this partly explains perhaps the course of my life because I wasn't exactly brought up just in one place. Obviously, I was born and brought up in Abergavenny, went to school there and so on. But also, I had grandparents and relatives in Cardiff. I spent a long time in Cardiff, particularly with my grandfather. I had other relatives in Pembrokeshire. So I spent a long time and have a lifetime's association in all sorts of ways with that part of the world. And also with North Wales, where Penry and Gertrude, as I said, the, the minister, they had a cottage in Anglesey to which they retired and which I went and spent a lot of time as well. So I had a, and uh, as a teenager, I used to cycle around Wales to all these various places. So I had a sense of the, should we say, the geography of the place. Um, uh, but I went away, I went to, away to university in Bristol. And from there I went into journalism um, in the late 60s. I started my so-called career on the Yorkshire Post in Leeds, spent four years there before I had a, uh, a crucial decision I had to make. I was offered simultaneously two jobs. I was offered a job uh, with a press association in the gallery of the House of Commons, you know, the classic way into political journalism. And I was also offered a job on the Western Mail, uh, more or less at the same time. So I had to choose, and uh, I chose Wales. <laughs> and uh, you then, uh, at the same time as you were a journalist, you were obviously writing a lot about uh, the um, about Welsh politics. I mean, we're, talk we're talking here, aren't we, I suppose, by the time you got that job of, what, the early 70s? Yes, I, I joined the West Mail in 1972. Yeah. So the debate is going on at that stage, uh, it's beginning really about the genuine prospects of having an assembly. So you were covering that at the time and you will have met a lot of the principals uh, who were involved in trying to drive that forward. Absolutely. I mean, I was uh, had a very, well, a bit like yourself uh, these days, but I had a privileged position in that. Um, I used to go to all the party conferences, went to the House of Commons, covered the devolution debates there, met all the various people. Um, I also had a, a curious way in through a family connection uh, with George Thomas, whom I know you've written a biography, uh, but uh, I knew him rather well in those very early days of the 1970s. So he was a very useful p person for me to introduce me into his world and all of that. So, yeah, throughout the 1970s, uh, I covered Welsh politics of the day, and it was dominated uh, by uh, the devolution debate and also the Welsh l language and the controversy around the language, which was very much tied up with the devolution debate, because in those days, the people who were campaigning against devolution, people like Leo Absey, um, they used the language, um, I mean, quite uh, uh, 
quite crudely, I would say, uh, but, but they remorselessly use the language as, as a, a weapon, really, to beat um, the whole devolution cause. And uh, at that point, they were successful. Uh, but uh, anyway, all this is reflected in the book, as you know. But uh, uh, it's interesting, when I started to write the book, I hadn't intended to um, focus as much as I think it does on the language. It wasn't my... But I found myself inevitably drawn into that for various reasons, partly because I say because it was an instrument in the debate over devolution, which is the central sort of core argument in the book. I mean, essentially what I'm trying to do in the book is, or you mentioned in the the project, (laughs) is to look at that period, the last part of the 20th century in Wales, which I think is a crucial period in our whole history, the whole history of our country, from the very beginning crucial, because... The very survival of the country, in a sense, was at stake at that point in all sorts of ways. But I wanted to understand and explain why we had that defeat, four to one, four to one defeat, overwhelming defeat uh, in 1979. I mean, Patrick Hannan, who was the political correspondent of BBC Wales, announced the end of Welsh politics. Uh, you know, that, uh, uh, but then within a historically extraordinarily brief period, 18 years to 97, that defeat was turned into a, a victory albeit a narrow victory, but an extraordinary shift. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Uh, and that's what I'm trying to as I explain and understand and get across uh, through the form of um, a, a kind of an imaginative engagement with reality. <laughs> what was it, John, that uh, convinced you that the way to do this was not just to write a polemical work, but to, to actually, as it were, cross the Rubicon and write a novel? Interesting question. I, I'm, I mean, I didn't set out to write a polemical work. I, I set out to write a history, in a sense. Um, and I, you know, I started doing the research. I mean, pretty an awful lot of research has gone into this, by the way. I mean, because as you mentioned, um, all the characters who appears themselves, you know, Kinnock, Leo Absey, Grimber Evans, or, or the whole Raymond range, Williams. Raymond Williams. All these people, their peers, but when they speak, they speak their own words that they spoke one way or another at the time. It may be they didn't speak those words precisely on that occasion, but at some point around that period, they uttered those words, which I found, you know, in their papers, in the library, in newspapers, in Hansard, letters, all manner of sources are brought together. But you ask, why a novel? Why this format? Well, I, I kind of was driven in that direction because I wanted to understand the personalities of these people of these people I wanted to get across the complexity of the arguments and uh, the and the the kind of engagement of of the intellectual side of things with the emotional um, and at the time I was reading uh, a Russian not novel, Doctor Shivago. Um, rereading it, in actual fact, and that novel um, is about the Russian Revolution essentially, and about the um, engagement and, and arguments around it. Uh, it and uh, but it's done in the novel form, and it's done in a way that I could see I could do, because. In a sense, I mean, what is when you can conf- begin on a task or uh, like this, 
you know, you tend to be overwhelmed by the scale of the whole thing. And where do you begin? I mean, how do you tackle it? But uh, if it's treated in the way the Russian no novelists do, I mean, uh, Tolstoy and these people, it's all episodic, you know. So, you know, you go from one episode to, to another. So well, that's what I found myself starting to do, writing and researching specific episodes and so on. I mean, this led to problems, of course, because if you write it in that kind of way, when you come to you know, the end, does it all hang together? <laughs> you know. So, but nonetheless, I had to go back and you know. And also, um, what I found really difficult uh, was developing. Um, I've got two main protagonists, um, and um, to begin with, when I thought after about two years, I thought I'd finished. You know, but I hadn't because I hadn't developed their their stories. So, in order for this to work or anything of this kind to work, the reader has to kind of enter the world of these people, it has to become interested in what happens to them, has to like or dislike them, has to wonder what's going to happen, and so on and all that. Uh, and um, so I, I had to go back, and I'd, 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 it's, it's I'd written the skeleton of the thing, but then I had to put the flesh on the bones of the way my two protagonists interacted with the events and, and so on through which they passed in, in these years. So the protagonists are uh, Owen, who is a journalist. To what extent is Owen based on you? And then there is a Cumdeithas Oriaith activist, uh, Rhiannon. Why did you pick on a Cumdeithas Oriaith activist? So first of all, to what extent is Owen you? Well, it's a moot point. I mean, he obviously... I mean, quite a lot of the things that happened to him and the experiences and the things that he, you know, witnessed and so forth, I obviously did. Uh, so, you know, you find him on occasion in the House of Commons witnessing a debate, you know. Well, I was there, you know. Um, and quite, I mean, so, you know, it has to be said uh, quite a lot, but not altogether. I mean, Owen's personal life is not my personal life, for example, so... But I, he, he developed, I develop his relationships and so forth. He has a network of family and friends. And, um, you know, I mean, I place him who's coming from Pembrokeshire. I mean, I, I mean, so on. So they're, it's, they're, it's nuanced in that sense. But nonetheless, uh, when I was writing about him and what happens to him, I, as I said earlier, I was kind of in my comfort zone because, I, you know, I, was, I knew what I was writing about from direct personal experience. Now, the other character, Fiannon, um, was quite different. You asked how I light lighted on her. Well, I wanted a female in the first instance, you know, uh, uh, for obvious reasons, you know, for all sorts. But I wanted a woman. I wanted a woman who was activist in some way, engaging, um, involved in, in the events that were happening. And if you looked around the 70s, you know, there were no women. There were just no women in public life. There were no female MPs. The first female MP was Anne Clewitt, but that didn't happen until... Well, there had been in previous times, but only or, or the odd one. But in the, in the 70s, there weren't. There, there were hardly... They didn't have any profile anywhere that I could find, except one place, and that was Kumdaitha Siriyaitha Kumraig, the Welsh Language Society. And it's very, very interesting, fascinating, I found, that, um, that they... Um, women, or young women and young men had a measure of equality, both in terms of 
you know, their engagement in activities and action, non-violent in direct action, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but also, it seems to me, in their relationship, in the nature of the campaign, how it was organised, how it was run, how decisions were taken, and so on. And uh, that was because they were sharing. They were sharing in the same ideals, but they were also sharing in, in, the, in the same action, and it has to be said, suffering. Uh, so, so, uh, but so that was the one place. So, and um, it, it, I got drawn into it, really. But it, you know, it was. It, I found it difficult to, first of all, put myself in the head of a young woman, <laughs> but also to put myself in the circumstances in which she found herself. Because mm. you do have um, scenes that are in jails where they uh, have been taken. Um, after taking part in uh, direct action, uh, there are uh, some scenes where uh, the activists uh, climb up transmitter poles and then get arrested and taken to prison. And uh, I think you convey the uh, the suffering that somebody who is not used to going to prison feels, um, having been confined for, uh, albeit quite a brief period of time, uh, Nevertheless, it affected uh, affected her quite uh, quite profoundly. How did you get a sense of what that was like? Well, um, I researched it as far as I could. I read as much as I could around that. But I also spoke to uh, Welsh language activists, women who I know, who were active around about that time and went through those kinds of experiences. So I. I, I mean, in a sense, interviewed them or went and spoke to them about it. So I got a sense, uh, but um, and then I had to, I suppose, you know, use the um, imaginative kind of ideas of of uh, of that kind of writing. I mean, one thing I did do, uh, which I think is quite important, is the the relationship of Rihanna, the main character, with her father, who actually is he's very much based on my minister f father in actual fact who was a strong socialist uh, Christian socialist, a pacifist of, of that kind of look from that kind of period and a very powerful advocate of those ideas and he and Fianon clash over, the, over the, the, the methods that are used, this concept of how can you have non-violent direct action You know, this, so they have as you've read, I mean, they have the kind of and and so he obviously, and I try and convey his sense of anguish about what's happened to her. He disagrees with what she's doing. He doesn't agree with her aims and objectives. He disagrees with the methods and so forth. So um, uh, yes, and uh, there are a number of subplots. So in, in so in the use of violence in politics and, and those kind of uh, ideas. Of, so. Triana, for example, is studying, you know, she's a student in Aberystwyth, she's studying for a PhD in, in the work and life of Franz Fanon, uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the revolutionary who was involved in, in the um, 50s uprising in Algeria, uh, who was a, a theorist, a, a the theorist of, uh, of, of, you know, colonial, you know, anti-imperial movements and wrote wrote extensively and he was a he's an extraordinarily interesting man actually and um, which I've always been myself fascinated by him uh, but so, but then but then his 
you know, he advocates the use of violence, but obviously in a totally different context and situation than you would find in Wales. So I, I try and, and, and engage with those sorts of ideas as well. Um, but, but anyway, so, the, but, and, but in a sense, all of this is, although it's a, a stream of ideas that are running through the book, they're there to kind of sustain and build up the character of Rhiannon and to get you to understand and feel and go with that, I think. Also, I think uh, what you're doing in the book is explaining the part of the Welsh character, if you like, which is to constantly question what is Wales, what is Welshness, why are we doing what we do, what can we do better. Those are constants, aren't they? Why is it, do you think, that the Welsh are so preoccupied with these kinds of existential questions? Well, I think the, the, the main character in the book, Raymond Williams, who uh, um, the writer, he was actually from my part of the world. He was uh, from Pandy, just outside Abergavenny. Um, I knew him. I knew him quite well. Uh, but I think he was, one of, well, one of the most profound Welsh thinkers of the 20th century, uh, unquestionably. Um, but he used to say, you know, when he was growing up in Pandy, you know, we looked west and we saw Wales and we looked east and we saw England. <laughs> you know, and who are we? <laughs> and, uh, it, and it's a characteristic thing, I think, of, of Welsh people always to ask, when they meet, to ask each other, you know, where are you from? And, and by that they mean not, you know, are you, you know, if you're meeting a holiday or something, are you from Wales? But where precisely, specifically in Wales are you from? You know, I love this, this true story about one of the characters in my book, a guy called Gwyn Morgan, who was uh, involved in labour politics, but also in the European, the, the common market, he worked for them, but he was from Aberdeer. But he, he used to tell the story how he went and stayed in a bed and breakfast in Stratford-on-Avon and uh, met another Welsh person in the bed and breakfast in Stratford-on-Avon. And the man asked him where he was from, and he said, Aberdeer. And the man said, don't generalise. <laughs> <laughs> where in, you know, you know Abercumboid, Sludcoid, and all that, where, where specifically that? So... Uh, so that, that is a characteristic, I think, of all Welsh people, and I think it is a characteristic of Welsh people to, to always ask, you know, always wonder, what exactly are they and, and, and how do they fit in? Because, you know, our trajectory, um, and it's only in this period, in actual fact, this period I'm writing about, that I think that, that Wales as an idea becomes lodged in the minds of people at all. I mean, the Wales as a as an entity, because people's primary kind of source of identification is their their broad their locality. Um, it was a case at the beginning of this period, for example, that Welsh speakers in North Wales would not be able to understand Welsh speakers in South Wales. It's only with the advent of broadcasting and BBC that you get a common spread of the Welsh language, so we so it becomes easily. You know, because you could get you know the BBC Welsh that everybody has. You know, by the end of the period. Uh, so, and also, um, you know, the fact that uh, you know we we never developed our own institutions in, in the way that, for example, the Scots had done from the very beginning. I mean, the Scots were not conquered. 
uh, they they uh, they had a botched union it may be but it was a union with England in 1707 and uh, they had a a union of of king and parliament but they kept their institutions they kept their separate education system church uh, and all all the rest of it Um, uh, law legal system and so on Um, we we never had those and we, we never have had them until now you know I used to say, for example, that um, the difference between Wales and Scotland, you know, when the Assembly finally came, was in 1997, after that referendum, the Scots had one at the same time, as you know, was that for Scotland, the Scottish Parliament, as it was called from the beginning, it was like a keystone that was placed in an already existing arch structure of institutions in Scotland. And, you know, they desperately needed that keystone, for example, because their legal system was dragging behind because they, there was no time in the Westminster Parliament to update their laws and all the rest of it, which now the Scottish Parliament can do. But nonetheless, it was a keystone placed in an arch, an already existing structure. In Wales, there was no arch. What the Assembly had to do when it was set up was start building the arch, you know, in, in a literal way. And... Uh, that is the measure of the difference, but nonetheless, um, you know, it, 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 it was the beginning of the creation, well, in this period overall in actual fact, but uh, the devolution debate beginning really uh, after the war with the beginning of the creation of Welsh institutions, uh, in particular, I suppose, the Welsh office, which was established in 1964, which, uh, and, then, and then after that, once we'd had the Welsh office, the BBC, by the way, BBC Wales was created on the same year. Um, you know, communications, broadcasting, newspapers, and, and all that are are quite crucial to this whole thing. Um, they uh, uh, they began the process, and once you once you've got your Welsh office there with all the civil servants, then, then the art, then the question becomes, well, who makes the decisions? How do you you know where does control lie? Where's the democracy? And that was the beginning of the debate that we were, that we had in those years. I mean, uh, one of the themes in the book, you know, which is touched on a few times in discussions uh, between the uh, the characters, is the extent to which Wales could be characterised as a colony of England. Where do you stand on that particular point? Well, um, a very influential book came out in in, in the seventies called Internal Colonialism. Um, uh, by, by an American author, American academic, who I learnt hadn't actually set foot in Britain before he wrote this book, <laughs> which might tell you some, something. But um, no, um, the concept of an internal colony within a state is something which is common throughout Western U- U- Europe, in fact. I mean, you, you look at virtually every country, every nation state within the European Union, and you will find um, communities, nations, peoples analogous to the Welsh or the Scots, you know, embraced. So in France, you have the Bretons, in Spain, you have the Catalans, you know, and, and so on. So in Italy, you have, you know, um, Mike Stevens wrote a book in the, in the 70s called National Minorities and so on, which he listed about a hundred of these groupings in Europe. So, uh, so in a sense, the um, the, the boundaries of the states that we have that comprise the European Union now are historical accidents. They're, 
they are arguably not the natural boundaries of peoples. They are the the result of the the, the way development has occurred since broadly the French Revolution, and so. You can you can make I think quite a convincing case, um, but the trouble is that uh, you know the the relationship of Wales, for example, with England is is not in the same category as the relationship with Algeria to France or in or, or some of the African co- colonies. But uh, the analogies can go quite far, uh, and. Um, and then, of course, it's very different from a place like Scotland, which, as I say, sustained its own institutions. So how far can Scotland be, really? But Ireland probably even more can be, you know, when you look at the history and relationship of Ireland, you know, with the mainland. Well, you have an Irish character in the book. Uh, yes. touched on. Yes, yes. I was keen, I was keen to take the debate into a wider frame. So there's, there's chapters on Scotland, Ireland, Catalonia. Um, uh, to, to, to try and make this, to try and broaden uh, the, and to set this argument that you ask about um, in, in context. Um, well, uh, one of the themes of the book is that the, the nature of Welsh culture uh, and uh, and its relationship with its neighbour, and you know, it is, and it seems to me, unarguably a culture of defeat. You know, and uh, what do you mean by that? Well, it's a culture of defeat because the, the common experience of the Welsh historically has been to be defeated all the time. I mean, if you look, I mean, the classic experience of the 20th century, uh, the two dates, you know, which are highlighted and were not, were certainly when we get to volume two, but I mean, 1926, General the strike. general strike, the defeat, but the defeat in South Wales you know, was experienced in an intensely different way to anywhere else. And then you fast forward to 1984-85, the minor strike of that time, which is almost like a replay. It's astonishingly how similar many of the events that happened and the way they happened. Another cataclysmic defeat. But it was out of that defeat, out of that defeat, I'm convinced, and this is what I'm I'm exploring that. Op- that was the hinge on which the door opened to the referendum in '97, which when we had one of our rare victories. Uh, so, so, so I think it's an astonishingly melodramatic s- story. I mean, there's going to be a quotation in the next volume because it actually happened. Because uh, I didn't meet Leo Absey, who's a key character, because I wanted to have someone who represented the counter-argument, you know, against which who would put the case of the opposition in a, a way that was strong, convincing, and sort of and representative, actually. Uh, but I, 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 I hated Apsi in, in the 70s, never met him, but then I finally met him in the early 80s and got to know him quite well and actually got to like him. Extraordinarily uh, complex, interesting, narcissistic, but incredibly interesting man, you know, a man of great achievement. But I remember saying to him on one occasion, do you know, I used to call him Leo, do you know Leo? I said, in my life, politically, I never won anything. Everything I voted for is lost. No party I voted for has ever won anything. Everything I've campaigned for, wanted, has lost. You know, my history, my story is one of defeat. He said, ah, but John, boy, 
you learn from your defeats. <laughs> he said. The thing is, I suppose, um, that there are going to be those people who say, and if he were still with us, uh, the UAPC might say this, that you've campaigned to establish this assembly. Uh, it's come to pass. We now have all the trappings of a proper government with cabinet secretaries and ministers. Uh, they've got people driving them around. Uh, the institution has developed uh, to the point where uh, one of the big debates is about how to achieve um, gender balance, uh, even though they started off pretty well with that anyway. Um, and yet, when you look at the big issues, education, health and the economy, the achievements are actually small and it's arguable that we've actually gone backwards in some respects. Was it all worthwhile? Oh, I have no hesitation um, to think it's... I mean, you, uh, the thing is, how they got going, you know. I mean, this is a, this is a, a project that will take generations, you know. I mean, we're building, you know, we're, we are building a national infrastructure here. Um, I mean, it is true uh, that um, many of the problems that, we, that were inherited uh, still remain unresolved. Um, uh, but I think, I think they would have been much, much worse, actually, than they actually are. But that's not to say that... Uh, um, arguably there's been failure to actually grapple with failure of imagination but I mean the powers in the hands of the National Assembly for Wales are minuscule I mean follow the money they have no power over money they're supposed to be getting power over money they're supposed to be but you know that hasn't yet to happen uh, uh, they have, you know, no power over the kind of macroeconomy, um, and you know, until that happens, you know, major decisions about ex expenditure variations and so forth, they can trim around the edges, as you know, and put a bit there and a bit here and so forth, which you know can't make a difference. And uh, but uh, until they have, you know, the full, and um, I have to say too that you know, coming out of the EU. Is going to create tremendous difficulties uh, for the Welsh Assembly, partly because it, it's going to. If it happens, I don't believe it will happen actually. But if it does happen, um, then it will put huge strains on the United Kingdom. You still don't think that we're going to come out of the no, EU? No, I don't think so. I can't. I well, maybe I'm naive, <laughs> but it seems such a kind of a, a you know process of. of serious self-harm on the part of the British state you know it seems inconceivable that when they look down the barrel of the gun they'll pull the trigger you know <laughs> but uh, uh, I think they'll be stopped one way or another parliament I mean cross fingers who knows no, we're not there yet but if it were to happen it would um, it would be the end of the United Kingdom in my view I mean not immediately but uh, the whole question of Northern Ireland in this relationship with Ireland will be put under huge, huge strain, and uh, I think by you know the manner of nature of the Brexit debate and the argument, 
uh, the British establishment have told the Northern Irish that they don't want them, despite the fact they're depending on them in government at the moment. But, uh, but then, but I think the Scots will be forced out. And then we, in Wales, will be left, you know, in bed with a proverbial elephant. That's going to create tremendous, tremendous problems and difficulties and challenges for, for the... Uh, but that's all ahead. Well, you touch on that in the, uh, in the book, and there are debates between individuals... Uh, about the viability of Wales as an independent state. Mm. Uh, and you've got a professor, haven't you, who's talking about this, who's trying to persuade people, uh, students who are sceptical about yeah. that as a, as a way forward, uh, that um, uh, Wales actually, like many other small nations, could survive as an independent state. Do you believe that to be the case? Of course, it could survive as an independent state. I mean, it's uh, in, in global terms. It's uh, we're, we're, despite the fact that we think oh, we're poor and all the rest of it, we're actually pretty wealthy. You know, there's all sorts of problems about distribution between sections of society and so on. And I believe that if we had a, a modicum of a proper self-government, we could actually deal with those issues in a better way than we can now. Um, the issue is. Um, uh, to persuade or for people to feel comfortable with, with the kind of the risk they would feel economically. Uh, but, uh, the, I mean, Wales is, is, one, you know, is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, of course. You know. So, I mean, uh, but, you know, uh, one step at a time. Uh, we, um, uh, I think we, we have to make a success uh, and be seen to be making a success of the powers we already have in the National Assembly. And we have to develop a mature democracy, which we don't have yet. Now, in a mature democracy, people can change the government. I and that isn't really possible. It's not. Well, it, 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 the nearest we came to it was in 2007, when Labour was forced into coalition with Plaid Cymru and forced to adopt a, a, a more radical programme of policy development and implementation that otherwise would have conceived of. I mean, the, the, the programme for government that was written in 2007 was written by Plaid Cymru and accepted. It was a socialist programme, so they, why shouldn't they accept it? But, but they, didn't, they didn't have the motivation to do it on their own. So, but until we have a structure in Wales, a system of, of, uh, where the, of, 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 of political alignment whereby a change of government of a real sense, is, you can throw the buggers out. You know. Until we have that, we would not have a matured democracy, and uh, you know. So we, we have to get there, and as they have done in Scotland, by the way. I mean, they have changed their government in Scotland, and uh, they have seen that the government that comes in can be competent, it can be effective, and so forth. And they very nearly voted for independence. So um, I mean, so that uh, I mean, I have no doubt that at some point, probably not in my lifetime, <laughs> but uh, we, will, we, will, we, will, we will get to that uh, position. But, but at any rate, I don't think it will be a matter of independence in that, uh, in that because philosophically no one is independent. I mean, I've got a line in the book about, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quotation from one of the founders of the EEU, his name escapes me at the moment, it could be Schumann or one of those people, he said there are only two categories 
in the U European Union, um, medium-sized, small or medium-sized countries, and countries that don't know that they're small and medium-sized. <laughs> uh, in actual, so I think we will end up, in my view, in Britain, with some kind of confederation. I mean, we're, all go we're always going to have close relationships within the island. How could we not? I mean, England is our biggest trading partner. We always will be forever and a day. Same with the Scots. Same with the Irish. I mean, the, the whole issue of leaving the EU for the Irish, for the, for the, for the southern, for the Irish government, is, is cataclysmic. You know, their, their GDP is going to drop by 10%, they think, and because their trade links are all... So we're all, you know, we, but we're going to have to reforge our relation, our constitutional relationships, I think, along so that, that we will share it in a, in a more equitable way. So we won't have the kind of silly arguments we're having at the moment between the UK government and the Welsh and Scottish governments over repatriation of powers in the event of our leaving the EU because the British government or the civil service in London say, well, why should we bother with them? And perhaps one of the reasons why they say why, why should we bother with them is unfortunately because a lot of people in Wales do not take an interest in politics at all. And I remember feeling uh, on a number of occasions when uh, I've been speaking to you or to other people, uh, I may have attended a conference organised by the organisation that used to be the director of Institute of Welsh Affairs, uh, I may have been speaking to some politicians, and then maybe I'm going home and I get on the number 17 or 18 bus <laughs> and I just think, what is the connection between what has been spoken about at that conference and these people on the bus going to quite a poor part of Cardiff called Ely, where the bus uh, has its destination. And to what extent are these people engaged or have any knowledge at all about the kind of high-level intellectual debate that's been going on at the conference? And just there's just this massive disconnect. How can people like the travellers on the number 17 and 18, Buster Ely, be brought into this debate and to feel they have a part of it? Well, I think there's two things to be said about that. Um, you know, that's part of the weather. It, it's always going to be like that. It always has been like that. But, but, but at the same time, I think we underestimate how much people actually do, how, how much awareness there is. And... Um, and so when they think they can make a difference or something will really matter, they will get involved. I mean, I remember, a small example, but I remember at the time of the 2007 coalition negotiations and all of that, uh, I, I was having some kind of quite major work being done in my house, but it was, a, it was a council scheme, actually, not just my house, but the whole street was being enveloped and developed. And there was a large number of building workers not knocking about. And I, I was sitting, I was, I was in one of my rooms with the window open. I was listening, heard a conversation from two or three men who were standing you know, on a scaffolding somewhere above me. And one of them was saying to the other, Do you know what? That Yarn Wynne Jones, he's gone to government, you know? <laughs> I thought, How do they know that? <laughs> But so people do know more than you think, uh, and uh, and you know if 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 they if they can be feel that the issue is important enough, and if they feel that they can make a difference, if their vote will count, 
then they, they can they will be engaged. I mean, uh, but we have all sorts of institutional um, uh, structures to try and force them not to take part, like the voting system and all these other things. So that you know, I mean, we have this crazy situation in British politics where only a tiny number of votes in a handful of constituencies decide the election. I mean, you know, what's that about? I mean, that's designed to turn people off, isn't it? I mean, you know, you couldn't construct a system more devoted to, you know, you know, distancing yourself from the uh, demos than that. <laughs> Your book is called Ten Million Stars Are Burning. That's a quotation from a poem. What made you alight on that as a title? Well, uh, as I said earlier, the, one of the fundamental kind of streams in the book is and which which is part of the explanatory power of what happened was the experience of the mining communities in this period and um, well but specifically in the 1980s which has appeared just outside this particular book but we come on to it but it so happened that um, in 1976 there was a, there, there, an organization called Flavia which is the Welsh Labour History Society organized a conference which I went to in Dutch Forest uh, on the 50th anniversary of the 26th strike. And uh, this was a, a perfect foil for me because it enables me to set up the whole experiences because they were looking back at the 1926 strike, what lessons could be learned. And by the way, they just had two successful strikes in 1972 and 1974. The 1974 strike, minor strike, brought down the Heath government. Um, uh, so, uh, and I, when I was researching the background to 1926, because I, I write about and so on, I, I came across again, you know, a poet I had was aware of, but was not sufficiently uh, given sufficient attention to, she would say, Idris Davis, the poet of the Rumney Valley, and uh, he wrote. I mean, he was a miner, and he was involved in the 1926 strike. Um, he'd been mining at that point. He went to the pit at 13, and um, uh, in his work down the pit finished with the strikers. He'd done it afterwards, and he managed to get, uh, you know, teaching qualification. He became a, a teacher and worked a long time in England. But he wrote his poetry about largely about that period, the strike itself, and the depression and so on that happened in the, the 30s. These were his great themes, and uh, he's a fine poet. I mean. I was very. Anyway, he uh, he wrote um, one of his poems. Was called 1926, and there's a line that we shall remember 1926 until our blood is dry. Uh, that line it's in the book. Uh, <laughs> but in Guale Deserta, I mean, I read through it, and suddenly this paragraph shot out at me. You know. I was, I was on a bus reading it actually, coming into Cardiff, and uh, and it's it's a, a it's a, it's a kind of a it's a four lines in the poem, and it goes, ten million stars are burning above the plains tonight, but one man's dream is greater to set the world alight, and what that conveyed to me was the fact that in all this striving around Welsh identity, what it means to be Welsh, and 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 so on, and the arguments and the disputations and. In the, in the, all the about nationalism, about language, and, and about you know, all this, and about how, you know how representation and all these things, but it's always been resolved and determined by the determination of uh, small numbers of people 
who are determined above all else and one man's dream you know that so so and that has been characteristic you know of 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 welsh history wales has survived against all the odds because of the ridiculous determination of a handful of individuals down the ages. But that doesn't necessarily say much for democracy, John. <laughs> it says a lot about life. Okay, your novel I found very easy to read. Uh, I had a couple of long train journeys last week and I just found myself whizzing through it. I found it quite enthralling. I think that anybody who is interested in Welsh politics and uh, recent Welsh history will find a lot in it so many congratulations to you for having made the transition from being a polemicist into being uh, a genuine novelist and uh, I hope the book does well I recommend it to everyone thank you very much John Osmond thanks for listening to my podcast Martin Shipton Meets we'll be back for more next week